Welcome to the Innovation Cafe here on What She Said. I'm Chris Abel, and this week I'm speaking with Christine Germano, who's the Artistic Director of the Portraits of Resilience Project. Hi, Christine. How are you? Very good. Thank you. So we're here talking today because there's been a new installation that's been opened at the Ontario Science Centre that's been dedicated to this. And I think at first glance, it's a beautiful way of visualizing a lot of the images and stories that have been collected by your project, but the project itself is much larger. So let's first start talking about what Portraits of Resilience is. The Portraits of Resilience project um, is a project where the children, Indigenous children, from these faraway places, some of the most vulnerable places in the world due to climate change, have written their own personal stories and they have gone out and investigated their stories by interviewing and investigating the local experts in their community. And then they go out and take photographs to go along with their stories using my professional gear. Is this a case that it's not going out and just recruiting local kids, but it's noticing that you have children, you have teenagers in these areas who are already putting together these stories. And so it's much like you're a curator bringing that together. Um, sometimes, in the case of Fiji, they actually, the school that I worked with had a group called the Green Teens. So that was a very easy group to work with. They were already on it. And then there's the alternative or other stories of where like Greenland, Umanak, when I went to the school and said, hey, you know, tell me your stories about climate change. And they all rolled their eyes and they're like, oh, again, another climate change expert that's come through. And I said, no, 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 no. I'm not here to do the research. You're going to do the research and I'm going to help you, you know, put this together through writing and photography, and at the end, we'll put together an exhibit that will travel around and go to the climate change talks. And when they found out that it was their voice, their writing, then they were interested. It strikes me that you are immediately solving one of the, the first sort of hitches or, or difficulties in communicating climate change as a story, and that getting your audience to shift from, okay, you're used to the patterns of weather where you live, but really climate change is about an additional set of patterns about the world. And so, you know, far too often people are being asked to use charts and graphs to try to make that transition in their thinking. You have the advantage of saying, look, photos, here, here are places, here are people, here are, you know, individuals you can hear their stories to get people to start to think globally, to think of this as a, a world picture. One thing about a, a child's voice or a child's story um, it's very attractive to everyone. It's just a very easy read. It's very welcoming. Everybody wants to read a child's story. In fact, sometimes they're also very humorous. They have their little ways of saying things. It brings a smile to your face while you're reading this story about, you know, the horrible things that are happening in the world due to climate change. But engaging people through those stories and of course through visuals I mean everyone knows a photograph is worth a thousand words so but how do we attract people to want for them to read these stories and when they see these big photographs they are just drawn right in and they want to read the story also the stories have been written in the original language so they're also in Greenlandic they're in Russian they're in Samoan and so that also as I looked at it, it, was a way of really recognizing where this knowledge is coming from and giving the credit you know, to that community 
where that knowledge is coming from. Also, many, many times there are scientists that will come through these communities and write their reports, but very, very rarely is that report translated into their language. I mean, this also touches right here in Canada, working with Indigenous people. It's not about just going in and taking away. It's about going into a community, involving the community, and also leaving something behind. All the photography, all the stories are left there for the community to do with whatever they want, whether they put them on the website, whether they blow them up. And, you know, it's a, it's a give-and-take relationship. You can't just go in and take knowledge without acknowledging where it came from and who created it. And that, I think, is a really important part to the project. I guess the attraction why you have so many scientists going to these specific communities and also part of the reason why you chose them is that these particular communities are noticing right away very drastic changes that are happening in terms of their environment. Well, especially with small island developing states when we're talking about atolls, you know, very low-lying islands, four or five meters above sea level, I mean with just a slight change of the rising sea level has a huge effect on them. It could mean the difference between 50 or 100 feet of land disappearing in one storm. In a place like Tuvalu, it means that their homes are flooded every month with high tides. Um, it's just that little bit of extra with the high tide and a storm, and the entire island can be covered in, in water. And so these are, in, in Kiribati, it's the, um, in particular, you know, not just the mangroves the, or the erosion that's happening on the sides of the island, but the loss, they, they almost lost their airport, which is a lifeline for them. So the EU came in and built a gigantic seawall to prevent the runway from getting too short. In another case, like Shishmaraf, Alaska, they actually had to rebuild that entire runway to be the long, you know, on the long side of the island rather than on the short side. So the effects for these small islands, developing states especially, and, and some of these smaller places in the Arctic, is they, they are hit really hard. I mean, they're not rich places. They're, they already have a bunch of struggles. And so when you add that, extra element, it's the difference between that country possibly really even able to exist in the next 20-30 years. Somewhere like Shishmaraf or in the Arctic, Umanak, where they rely on sea ice, you know, sea ice, a lot of people don't realize that it's, this is how they go out and hunt, not just for fish, but for seal. It also acts like a seawall. So when the winter storms come in, those winter storms will hit the ice before they hit the shore. Now, if there's no ice there, that, those raging winter storms come right up into the communities. A lot of these communities are right on the edge of, you know, especially in Alaska, right on the edge of the shoreline of the ocean. So they're very, very vulnerable. Yeah, it's remarkable that you are documenting extreme change, but showing how it sort of expresses itself in very different environments. So you're, you're saying, you know, here's one community that looks much like the other small community that you met, but they're dealing with flooding, and the other community is dealing with erosion, which seems like the opposite of flooding, and then you have another community that's dealing with melting. <laughs> yeah. And, um, and then there's, 
you know, in Umanac, also in Pangertong, you know, there's a fisheries right there in the community. So if they aren't able to go out and fish, then basically there's no work for the workers, which has another effect on a social side. All of a sudden, dad doesn't have money to come home and buy food. All of a sudden, you know, you don't have a purpose in life, as one of the kids writes. You know, hunting gives men a purpose in life to feed their family. And when you don't have a purpose in life, this leads to other issues, depression. I mean, I don't... Suicide. I mean, let's be real. Uh, we, it's no secret the suicide rates that are in the north and in some of these vulnerable places. And a lot of this is due to, it's, I mean, there's many things that it's due to, but these added stresses, you know, if you can't provide food for your family because you can't go out on the ice to just simply fish, that's a huge extra stress. The other significance to these particular communities is that their culture, because their culture is so steeped in tradition, these would typically be the very populations or areas that might over you know generations have that sentiment of, hey, the elders always saying, the more things change, the more they kind of stay the same. So when you have those communities now standing up and saying, no, there is something radically different here that has to be addressed, that should be a wake-up call to the rest of us to start to pay attention, I would, I would imagine. Well, it's uh, until it's on your own doorstep, I don't think people really take notice of. But here in Canada, you know, off the top of my head, I would say we're looking at Toronto Island. It's been flooded all summer. That's a big deal, you know. Flash floods in Toronto, just like that. Cars being swept away. I mean, I, I never remember anything like that happening while I lived in Toronto for years and years and years. Now in BC, you know, the forest fires, this is second, third summer in a row where we have had out of control forest fires and it's due to the fact that we haven't had a drop of rain in three months, nothing. The forest is so dry, just this teeniest little spark. And British Columbia is the most northern rainforest in the world. It's a rainforest and we have not had rain in three months. To me, that says something. You know, was it eighty-five percent of the shellfish died off the coast of BC last year due to a lack of oxygen? When we don't have enough rain, the rivers are very low. The salmon can't come up and lay their eggs. Even if they can lay their eggs, and the water is too warm, it destroys the salmon. This has an inc- like unbelievable effect. Not just for the fact that we don't have salmon and the whole fishing industry, but the indigenous people that are from you know those areas that rely on salmon fishing every year to fill their freezers, to can, to feast with, to eat with, is not there. Mm-hmm. And uh, I've also been talking to the hunters. There's been a big problem with migration of caribou, deer, the men that are going out hunting. It's, it's not the way it used to be the actual migration patterns have changed quite considerably and so it's been very hard to hunt for things like caribou and deer and things like that. Sure and they have uh, I would imagine amazing record in their communities. I mean we we often are looking at scientific record measurements ice cores and, and you know the graphs don't always go back as far as we hope but in those communities where they're drawing upon oral tradition when they're saying, hey, things are changing in our hunting patterns, for them, I guess it's significant because the change goes back several generations. 
So from their perspective, they're coming in and saying, look, we have our own record of what the climate record has been. And so from our perspective, the change really is significant. Yes. It's something to kind of, you know, be worried about. Yeah, the um, indigenous knowledge is an incredible thing, and it's passed on from generation to generation, and it's very in-depth. It's uh, holistic. I mean, it's a, a much more organic way of looking at things, but... I believe the knowledge to be very important, like absolutely um, very essential. And in fact, part of the reason why I do what I do is because the professors out there, the scientists, they want to start making that bridge. You know, they want to take the science world and the indigenous knowledge and bring it together. And so I guess in a way I'm, I'm a bridge maker. I'm sort of the person in between and using the arts as a way to tell that story is you know much more have a comfortable language for indigenous people that's the way like they are visual people that's a medium that is comfortable for them to express themselves and i think if you want to work with indigenous people you have to start from where they are what's comfortable for them how do they do their research listen to their stories one of the things i always try and follow is I never go into a community knowing anything because I don't know anything about that community. For me to read even a book on that community would still be a microscopic amount of knowledge compared to a person that's lived there their entire life. So the best way to start off on the right foot is just to acknowledge that I don't know anything and you're going to teach me and I'm so grateful for any kind of teaching that you can give me. And of course, through the children, you know, children love to share what they know. And when you acknowledge that they know something and what they know is valuable, I mean, it works out great for everyone. The child's self-esteem, they feel great. A lot of these children have been published. They've been in newspapers, on television. And to have that moment where someone cares about what they think, you know, they're the expert in that community. They really are. And sometimes the... 15-year-old, I hate to say it, knows more than the scientist does. <laughs> the value here isn't just, oh, these are really cute, adorable kids that are telling us stories, but because the change has been so extreme where they live, that in their own lifetime, their short lifetimes, they have these incredible stories of change to tell. Watching your stories, and it's hilarious because you have 15-year-olds and 17-year-olds that are going, you know, back in my day when I was like very small, thing, and it's, and, and it's when not- When I was a kid, yeah. <laughs> five years ago. <laughs> and it's not just them sort of imitating somebody else or putting on an act here. That's real. That, that, that actually is not just someone, I, I've always known teenagers that go, oh, man, I'm so tired or I'm feeling old. And you know that that's not really true. It's like, you know, when you get older, you're going to realize that you're sort of exaggerating here. That's not the case here. These kids, you know, in terms of their experiences is as real as if they were 60 years old or 80 years old. Yeah. And, you know, I, I think about when you're speaking this story in Shishmaraf, uh, one of the boys that goes out seal hunting and um, the changes he had seen, he wrote about, he went out seal hunting every day after school because it was just him and his grandfather. And so his grandfather relied on him to go out and hunt seal and bring that home for food. And when I think about that, I mean, if I was to turn to a classroom of kids here in Toronto and say, gee, how many of you have gone out hunting for seal? They would be like, 
you kill a poor little seal, you know, would be their first response. But this is food. I'm like, well, do you go to McDonald's and eat a burger? Like, it's the same thing. The knowledge that comes through this and is really amazing because it's easily shared. It's, you know, education by children for children. But of course the adults benefit too. And um, as, as I say to kids, does it really make sense to ship beef all the way from the bottom of Ontario all the way to the top of Nunavut when they could just go out in their backyard and shoot a seal? Like environmentally, pollution-wise, like all kinds of things, the cost of it. No, it doesn't make sense. And so it, I really think we have to be careful how we criticize how other people live in different parts of the world and, you know, take a closer look at what is the reason and why. And instead of being critical about, you know, oh, you've killed a seal, I mean, they could just easily, and they do, they have posters on the wall of Inuit kids hugging cows, okay? They do at the school and it's, oh, please don't kill the cow, you know? <laughs> so it all depends on your own perspective of how you look at it. And they use every part of that seal, the furs, saved they make clothing out of it they make boots and some of the women resell it like this is their own home you know business and uh, it's not my place or anyone else's place to sort of stand in between what is needed for them to survive you're giving these kids gear and saying go out and tell a story yeah and no idea of what kind of stories you might be getting back have, have there been delightful surprises uh things that were unexpected it's like you wanted to take a camera and go shoot well first there's a little magic to it you got to get them to write the story first and sometimes we you know we do some brain sessions too you know sometimes you get into the class and they all look at you with a blank face of like well i don't know and i'm like come on guys Let's, let's just bring up the idea. So we just start putting ideas on the blackboard. And some kids will be right away, that's the project I want to do. And then there's other kids that are more shy and they're like, oh, I don't know what I want to do. And I'm like, well, pick one or maybe just interview your grandmother. Even that moment where a child has 15, 20 minutes interviewing their grandparent, I cannot tell you the feeling in the room of a grandparent who's like, their grandchild's come to interview them on what they know. And it was like the most uh, beautiful experience because it's, I call it like a big, huge circle of love. Just, you know, a child taking the time to recognize their own grandparent and, and all that they know. And then when that grandparent sees the final product, they're like, wow. And so it's a really nice uh, thing. One of the projects that I always refer to is The Sun Comes One Day Early, which is from Umanak, Greenland. And when that story was written nine years ago, it went to the climate change talks in Copenhagen. And it's a very, very short story. And it's basically the sun used to come on February 4th, and the, which is my birthday. And so when I was in the class, I was like, wow, this is really cool. The sun comes on my birthday. And that's when Jacob put up his hand and said, actually, no, it comes one day early. And I was like, really? How's that possible? He's like, well, the Greenlandic ice sheet has melted so much that now the sun pops up a day early. You know, it's like a mountain that melted, that blocked the sun. And I was like, wow. So we took that story to the climate change talks. I was absolutely floored at how many people, the kinds of people, diplomats, scientists, that would stop and look at that story. And they were kind of like, wow. And at that time, that was a new story. Now it's not. Okay, everybody knows about it. But 
what made it so unique was that scientists, they come and go. They come into a community, they're there for a week, they're there for two weeks. They might come back three or four times a year, but they're not there 365 days of the year. Most important thing about science is observation. That is where we start. That's the number one thing. What are you observing? So somebody that's observing the climate and the changes 365 days a year in a little community at the top of Greenland is by far going to see things that a scientist will miss. They may come in with a million cameras and photograph the movement of that glacier through stop photography, which is an amazing project, but they're not actually there to see these changes. You know, like they see it over the time of the camera, but there's something there, you know, the first-hand eyewitness account is so vital. Now, when people come here and they see the gorgeous photographs, they're huge. Uh, the wonderful presentation, the, the story, and then you've got videos here as well. Is there a place that they can go to follow up on the stories that are here? Is there a place, do you have a website where people can There read? is a website. It's uh, manystrongvoices.org slash portraits. But if you put portraits of resilience, just type portraits of resilience, it'll pop it up. So there's a website where you can see many, many more of the stories. I believe there's there has to be at least around 150 stories uh, from 12 different countries. I think it's uh, over 30 communities. So that, in, and actually that's just a small, there's a whole bunch of stories that never made it to, you know, the final print to go to the climate change talks. Originally they were made into um, banners, two meters by one meter. I made or I designed it that way so that they could be rolled up, you know, stuffed in a tube and shipped around easily. I didn't want to see the project held back because we didn't have the money to ship it around. I wanted it to be accessible as possible. And it's incredible because of that, those banners, there's about 75 of them now, um, have been to three different climate change talks. They've been as far as Africa, they've been down to the States at the Field Museum, one of the most incredible museums in the world. Um, the National Museums in Denmark, Norway, even in Fiji there's been an exhibit, you know, so it's, it's made it very accessible to everyone, which at the end of the day is what we're really aiming for, to, to bring this knowledge right to everyone firsthand, that it's not exclusive, you know, just to a certain um, group of people. All right, well, well, thank you very much for having an extraordinary different take on climate change and giving us this project. It was a real pleasure to chat with you today. Thank you very much. It is your favorite girl. That's right. It's the Ali Mars, the one and the only. Everyone else just ain't me. I am the host of Welcome to Mars, a lifestyle podcast where nothing is off the table. I have come a long way from sex and dating and have transformed the new vibe to all things lifestyle. We still talk sex, but I'm more interested in the journey, where people have come from, how they made it, and where they're going. Subscribe or follow to a brand new look and a brand new era. Welcome to Mars. Subscribe or follow on Apple, Spotify, Google, or at theallymars.com. Because even with the new look, I'm still that same bitch you love to hate. I'm Andrea Askowitz. And I'm Allison Langer. 
And we are the hosts of Writing Class Radio, a podcast, but we are so much more. We have writing classes. So if you are looking for live online classes where you can join a community, write to a prompt, get feedback, and get better, check out all our classes at writingclassradio.com. And listen to our podcast wherever you get your podcasts and at writingclassradio.com. Another Sound Off Media Company podcast.